All right. So this month or these three months, we're exploring the three characteristics, some of the real core teachings of the Buddha. There is this um, poster, this, this old Sims member made of all of the Buddhist teachings. And the core of it was these three characteristics and everything kind of flowed out from there. And these characteristics, I'm going to just touch upon each of them and, and talk a little bit about how they interrelate. But I want to focus on dukkha, the first one. Can I really dive into that tonight? So these characteristics are of dukkha or sometimes translated as suffering. There's a Nietzsche, are also translated as impermanence. And then there's anatta or anatta, which is non-self. So these are called the markers of existence, markers of, of all conditioned phenomenon. And that condition part is really important to, to notice, to note, because that condition means that things, things come together based on conditions. Okay? If those conditions aren't there, they fall away. But the whole reason Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching works is because there is something that's unconditioned, that's beyond conditions. And that's what he directed us to discover, to see. That's the whole path he laid out. But most of our experience, most of our sense of who we are, how we relate to the world, is really shaped by these three characteristics. And the more we can understand them and see, and, and see through them, the less suffering we have, the less struggle we have. Now, these three characteristics, I think it's helpful to see them really as one thing. They have different facets, different aspects, because sometimes we peel out one or the other. And sometimes that's really helpful for your practice. Maybe you're drawn towards something like impermanence, really seeing how that shows up in the kind of microscope of your, your meditation practice. Or perhaps you're drawn to anatta to see how that sense of self is, is really illusionary. Or perhaps dukkha, that quality of suffering is what draws you into practice. And at some point, it's really important to see how whichever one you're drawn to has the other elements held within them. For example, we might really look at something like impermanence, and we start to realize that impermanence applies to me too, that I am actually arising and passing away. And that quality of arising and passing away also has this quality of dukkha, of suffering. So focusing on dukkha tonight, first let's define dukkha. So dukkha is this Pali word that's most commonly translated as suffering. But that's, it's helpful because suffering describes a lot of it, but also misses a lot of the nuances of this word, of this this, this process of, of, of dukkha. Because dukkha also refers to things just being unsubstantial, not being so solid, not being so fixed, not being so lasting. And if we look at just from a standpoint of suffering, sometimes we miss those other aspects of dukkha. That if we look closely, we see how things are very much always in flux, always changing, even that sense of me. The Buddha was very clear that dukkha is really is tied very much to that sense of me, that sense of self, and it's also very much tied to impermanence and to things ending. There's a sutta from the Majjhimakaya, the middle-length discourses, where the Buddha is describing these, these heavenly realms. You know, so there's a whole cosmology in the teachings, if you, if you look, that 
the Buddha describes different realms you might go to if you basically live a good life or maybe have a lot of deep meditative attainments. And he would describe one, and you know, it was, it was really beautiful and it lasted for a long time. But then at the end, he said, and that is dukkha. That is impermanent. That doesn't last. That's not what we're looking for. You know, that's not the, the point, the pointing of the practice. And he would go on and add, sometimes he would just go on to make the point more and more, like one eon, two eons, a hundred eons. And an eon, I think, is defined as longer than any human being can imagine, right? So there's these, these heavenly realms, but even those two end, they're also dukkha. And so this kind of makes us adjust how we're practicing. Because sometimes we're really looking for those pleasant states. I think we all love it when we feel this peace of meditation, this ease, this letting go. And we go, oh, I feel like I'm at home. Sometimes it's from the function of, of concentration, of the technique we're doing. But then it changes. It ends. And there's this suffering that arises from that. But what the Buddha was pointing toward is something which is outside of that change something that's a fundamental shift of our, our relationship to life, our perspective on life, and perspective of who and what we are. So the suffering translation, you know, is helpful, but also misses the whole, the whole piece of dukkha. Now, dukkha also has both obvious aspects to it and also more subtle aspects. So I'm going to kind of weave that in throughout the talk. So the obvious aspects are when we really know that subjective sense I'm suffering right now, you know, experiencing loss of a dear one, having physical pain, having disappointment, the reactivity, you know, all those kind of patterns of fear and anger. While we're in the midst of those, we, we know that we're suffering. We feel that we're suffering, physical pain, anxiety. And learning to work with these really obvious aspects of dukkha is essential because it allows us to start to quiet down the storm, help us to quiet down being caught in that pattern of reactivity. Because usually we're just kind of bouncing from one pain to another, trying to find some peace. So meditative practices, insight practices, investigation, metta, all these things can help quiet down that obvious expression of dukkha. However, often the root of that dukkha stays intact. That's why we can feel like, wow, I've really worked on this, but it just keeps coming up. Why does it keep coming up, this suffering? I may see through it. I may relax with it. I may shift my perspective, you know, connect with my breath, all these skillful means. But yet the dukkha comes up, the reactivity, the hurt, the tender areas, the places we get hooked by, if you will. And that's because that root of the dukkha is still intact. It's like if we were going out and trying to weed our, our garden or our yard by getting rid of the dandelions, by just pulling the flowers, okay, without really going down to the deep root system. We all know that those dandelions come back up. So this is where the subtle aspects of dukkha, I think, are so important to start to bring to the forefront, to start to orient our practice to those subtle aspects of dukkha. Now, these are subtle because we may not even realize that we're suffering in the moment. We may not recognize that there's dukkha in the moment. 
because it's showing a, a deeper perspective, a deeper kind of non-seeing and consciousness that's operating right there in that moment. If you learn how to work with those subtle aspects or those big aspects in the right way, it actually helps us see the subtle aspects, happens to make inroads into those. Because those subtle aspects are really what transforms us. That's what transforms our very heart and mind. And the Buddha wasn't about making, his, his point of practice, the point of the tradition, wasn't about making us more comfortable in the, in the world, in our lives. That's a side effect. Really, the, the ultimate purpose is to transform us, to transform our hearts and minds, to get at that root of dukkha. So we'll explore this a little bit more tonight as we go along. So the word dukkha, it's hard to not see it in the suttas, in the original early words of the Buddha. It's central to the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha, there's an origination of that dukkha, there's a sensation of that dukkha, and there's the path leading to the end of that dukkha. But what is this dukkha that the Buddha is talking about? Ceasing, ending. Because we hear that, okay, he's talking about ending suffering. Is that like some kind of almost magical heavenly realm that we don't feel any more pain, we don't feel any more loss, our bodies don't hurt, our minds don't hurt, our hearts don't hurt? That's not what the Buddha is speaking toward. And if you look at his own life as depicted in the suttas, he had pain. He had physical pain. He had a an injury to his foot that made it very hard to walk. He had back pain. He had digestive issues. Some suttas, he starts out the, the talk and he says, okay, I just can't do this. And he asks the senior teacher, the st- student to step in and take over for him. You know, so you can see the humanness. And sometimes if we think, okay, this is about the cessation of suffering, that means we're no longer human. We no longer experience this human suffering. So the Buddha wasn't speaking toward that, but more this, this way that we add on to this, this suffering we do have. We'll talk about that in a second here. And also, as I mentioned before, it's not just the subjective experience of pain or dis, dis-ease or suffering that the Buddha was pointing toward with dukkha. It's this very relationship of how we see the world and see ourselves in relationship to it. There's this one sutta where the Buddhist is called the fire sermon, where the Buddha is talking about basically saying everything is on fire. Everything is burning. Okay, what's it burning with? Burning with the power, with the flames of, of thirst, of tanha, of that coming into selfing, the way we're relating to life. Even pleasant states have that. Sometimes they have it very strongly and we don't recognize it. Now, it's not about avoiding pleasure or not experiencing things we enjoy. It's about what we add to those states, how we create a quality of dukkha with them. It's actually the same way that we create dukkha with painful states. It just feels very different in the midst of it. So the Buddha was really pointing toward this optional aspect of the suffering, that there's suffering that we all experience, but there's a part of it which is optional. And that's what I want to really kind of hone in 
on this, this talk with you tonight to encourage you to see that when suffering arises, it's actually a, a point of, of a invitation to practice with it, to see how am I suffering? When am I adding to it? How am I amplifying that suffering? That's what this homework tonight is all about. So it's a very kind of simple graphic way the Buddha described this was of the second arrow. So this is a teaching that many of you have heard, but if you haven't heard it, it's a, it's a really vivid description of how we create extra suffering, kind of a metaphor for that. So the story goes that someone is walking along and they get hit by an arrow. Okay. So that arrow pierces their, their body and there's a certain a level of pain that they're going to feel just because of that, that injury. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter if they're the Buddha, someone who's fully awakened, or just someone who's never practiced. There's, you can't change the fact that you're going to feel that pain. But what happens is someone who's practiced, who's a noble one, who's, who's practicing in this way, they just feel that. That's all they feel is that pain. Now, someone who's not practiced or forgets how to practice in that moment, as so many of us do, we amplify that. We start to you know, yell and scream and get upset about the, the injustice of it. How could someone hurt me in this way? And we're essentially giving ourselves a second arrow, a self-inflicted arrow. So this is the key piece is how can we not give ourselves that second arrow? This is often where that's, there's other characteristics show up. I learned this, I got to see this very vividly in uh, years ago when I was on a retreat and I had a kidney stone attack. I've told this story many times, but it's a, it's a very powerful story for me because I could just see so clearly what I was adding on to that moment. So kidney stone, if those of you have had it, you know, you know it's a very severe, intense pain. I was telling a friend about this and he was... He worked in the hospital, and he said he remember seeing someone who had, um, who had been at Vietnam had been shot, and he was just said that you know being shot is nothing compared to being having a kidney stone. Kidney stone is much worse. Probably depends on where you're shot and all those things, but it's an intense pain. But being a good meditator, I thought, okay, I'm going to just practice with this. I didn't know it was a kidney stone. I thought it was just this very bad gas bubble. And so I would practice, but I wasn't like sitting in, you know, in full lotus on, you know, in the, in the hall, I was in my room writhing in pain, but I was still trying to practice with, you know, feeling the sensations, noticing my reactivity and relationship to getting help and all those things. And the pain just got worse and worse. And finally, after three days of trying to work with it that way, I finally went to the ER, got diagnosed, got some morphine. And it was really interesting how that morphine just, took that pain away. And it's like, I could understand the nature, a little bit of a nature of addiction around that, just feel that pain fall away. Right. So I thought that was a good lesson. I learned how to work with it. I learned how I maybe definitely pushed too far. I'm just trying to be with it. Needed to shift much sooner, not be so stoic. Lesson learned. But then the pain stopped. So I thought, okay, lucky me, the, the kidney stone must have passed. But about a month later, the pain started again. And the kidney stone actually was just kind of biding its time and stuck in the ureter. 
and it started to move again. And as soon as it started to move, the pain came, of course, back. But it was, it was amazing to watch. There's the pain flooding back. And right after it, almost immediately after, but not quite exactly at the same time, was all the fear of that past experience, all the memories of how bad that was and how much it cost you to go to the ER and not having insurance and having to get a CAT scan and all these things. And I could see, wow, there's this intense experience and I've just amplified it by adding on all this past history. So that's the rub is that our past history we use to guide our decisions and how we navigate the world. We also use it to amplify our pain. One of my friends who um, has chronic pain, I was, he learned to work with it and he, by his, his words, divorcing the fear from the pain. Okay, the fear when that, if the fear and the pain are to mixed together, it became unworkable, became too much. But if you can separate that fear from that, it's okay, this is how the sensation is right now. The pain is right now versus what we add to it, right? And of course, we need discernment too. We need to know when we need to go to the ER and get help for those, those issues, those medical issues. So this is the very, the second arrow teaching and, and this, this story of what my own second arrow learning to see how that is, is kind of pointing to this really obvious expression of dukkha, this obvious, I'm really, I know I'm suffering in the midst of that. There's also a more subtle aspect that's going on. And that's really what the Buddha ultimately directs us to see, is where's that subtle aspect? So now let's look at the three types of dukkha, and I'm going to bring through that, that both obvious and subtle as we, as we explore that. Now, the three kinds of dukkha. The first kind is what's called dukkha dukkha, the dukkha of ordinary human existence of suffering. So this is birth, old age, sickness, death, association with unpleasant things and persons, separation from loved ones. And pleasant conditions. So this is this is that obvious part of, of suffering. This is kind of the unavoidable aspect. It's part of being human, having a human body, caring about other people. We will experience suffering to some degree. It's we can't avoid that. It's part of the, the worldly winds. But there's this part that's also added on, just like I added on with that kidney stone attack, the fear of that. So this is part of the homework, and we'll kind of preview it now, is the next time you hurt yourself, you know, it could be like stubbing your toe. Physical pain is really a nice way to do it. I mean, don't go out and do it on purpose, but, <laughs> but you just, you hit your, your hand or something. Tune right into those sensations, right? Because I notice often when I stub my toe or hit, bump myself, there's initial impact and there's this little gap before the neurons and the histamines start to kick in and the pain starts to flood. And see if you can just stay at that level of sensation. And notice how the mind wants to go into something else around it. Like, why did my wife leave this on the floor? This is not, this is a walking space. You know, why did, you know, you start to just rant at the world. You know, you can get really, <laughs> a lot of profanity comes out if you're not careful. So noticing, you know, profanity is not necessarily wrong, but 
just saying that. Notice how that's that second area, how we amplify that experience, amplify that, that pain. And start to notice that, okay, where am I adding that second arrow? Right? Notice it with emotional pain and mental pain, how we add this other element to it. Because there's some pain that we're going to feel. We can't, if we're trying to look for a place where you don't ever feel pain, that's, that's not where the Buddha is pointing toward us. It's about seeing how we add this other element of pain, of suffering, of reactivity. One teacher described it as the resistance toward the moment's experience. He actually used this, this really simple formula that resistance times experience equals suffering. I actually heard that teaching. That was really the first Dharma teaching I heard some, I don't know how many years, 28 years ago or so, 29, some, some long time ago. But that caught my ear so much because at the time I was going through a painful breakup of a, of a, you know, really established relationship and feeling that, that sense of uh, distress around that emotional pain, the loss of the hopes for the future, all that was kind of dissolving in the ending of that relationship. And when I heard that teaching, I thought, well, that's, that's actually sounds interesting that the pain I'm feeling, is that because of how I'm resisting this experience? So I kind of brought it really as a, a theme for much of my practice early on. You're seeing, well, how am I resisting this moment? How am I resisting this next moment? How am I adding to suffering? So if we resist a moment a lot, then we create a lot of suffering. If we don't resist it very much, not much suffering. Don't resist, resist it at all, there's no suffering. So this, depending on how you're kind of wired or your, your makeup, like I, I tend to be very somatic, very like, like the, the body sensations. So often I kind of track how it is in the body that feel that sense of resistance, an actual physical tightening. We might notice maybe in our minds how we just want to hold a thought or a belief or opinion, a stance, I'm right. That's all forms of resistance, all forms of, of that, that holding. And that's resisting how life is, creating a level of suffering with that. We might feel it more perhaps emotionally, you know, how there's that closing, that, that turning away. Sometimes it looks, you know, emotions and humans are so complex that we have emotions that were perhaps brought up to say, these are, these are the emotions you're allowed to feel and these are the emotions you're not allowed to feel. You know, and so we tend to, instead of feeling our anger, for example, we go into sadness. Or maybe instead of feeling our sadness, we go into our anger. Whatever that might be, start to see how that's all this resistance toward this moment's experience. Now, the more subtle aspect of this that I was kind of hinting at is really around that sense of me who's having that experience. And that's what I talked about with the five aggregates a few weeks ago, is we can look at that third other characteristic of an on-self, of anatta, as a key piece to how we amplify our suffering. Because when you think about this for a second, and notice this in your own life, that when you step your toe or experience some loss, some ordinary dukkha, notice how when the more you take it personally, the more you hold on to it, this is me who's having this experience, the more suffering you have around. Or if you're able to let it be just felt, 
without having to take so much ownership, not to create that sense of I, me, and mine around it, it becomes less. And we can make that even more subtly by noticing where's that sense of I in that moment? Where's the, who's the I who's angry that I stubbed my toe? Who's the I who's experiencing this, this loss, this grief, this anger? And you start to look for that. See, how, how solid is that? Because if we don't look, it feels very solid. It feels very established. That's part of the trick we play on ourselves. But if we actually look for that sense of me, when I mean, mean like really sense where it is, is it, is it like someplace I can touch? Is it someplace I can locate? Can I say, okay, it's right two inches below my, my rib here? Or is it much more amorphous? Or is it much more based upon the actual contraction, that perspective? And if you start to observe that, at some point you become curious well, what's observing all this? What's sensing all this? You know, can I relax into that? And this is really what the Buddha is pointing toward, is the relaxing into something outside of the sense of self. Now, pain has such a powerful way to, to contract us, to make us form, to become heard and opinionated. So learning to navigate our pain is so helpful or so important to do it skillfully. We don't want to do it in a way that negates our pain, that avoids our pain, because often we do have to really attend to our pain in a, in a very direct way. And I was, okay, I feel this. I need to address it. I need to maybe work on my archaic wounding, my childhood wounding. Maybe I need to work on my relationship patterns and relationship issues. So don't, you don't want to use Dharma practice as a way to kind of skip over things. Just avoid what needs to be addressed, what needs to be felt. It's like that um, that game shoots and ladders. How many people know that game? Good, a few people. Good. I was I use this analogy when I was teaching with Narayan, and she said, "I don't know what the, I don't know what that game is." So maybe it's not an East Coast game. I don't know. Of course, I grew up in New Mexico, so anyway. Shoots and Ladders is this child's game that you roll dice and you basically have these little blocks, you know, steps you're going to go from one square to another. So it's, it's an incredibly boring game, a boring game if you're an adult. But if you're a kid, it's fascinating because you can get to a ladder and you can jump over all these rows because you're trying to get to the end. But you also, if you land on a chute, you slide back. So sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to just do a little spiritual bypass. I'm going to jump over this personal pain and jump into the next level. But life has a way of dropping a shoot on you. The next thing you know, you're back at the bottom. Oh, so this is the dukkha of dukkha, the dukkha of ordinary experience. The next kind of dukkha is that of impermanence. Okay, the dukkha of impermanence. So Dukkha around impermanence is when we, especially when we take something as being permanent, that's going to be lasting and it ends, we experience a lot of suffering around that. Even though we may realize, okay, intellectually things will end, when it actually ends, there's a lot of suffering around it. And the tighter we hold on to that, the more we're invested in it, the sense that's who I am, that's so important to me, the more suffering we have. 
I was exploring this this last summer when my uh, only child went off to college and, you know, the empty nest, anticipating all that process and reflecting on how much suffering I was feeling around that anticipation of that, that change of relationship, that change of loss, even though it was something that we were had planned for and hoped for, for a long time. And I realized as I look closer, the more subtle aspect is I was really, there's a part of me that was identified with being a father in that way. There's a father in a way that, you know, takes care of, you know, takes care of your child. When the child goes off to college, you know, you, you say, okay, good luck. <laughs> you, you have to hope they're going to make good choices. And, and at least hopefully they can learn from their bad choices. You know, that's, that's part of the reality of being a, a parent is letting go. And I could see that the more I, I didn't see that, then the grief became worse. But I was able to feel that, okay, this is just the natural expression. This is this role changing than that suffering lessened and like let go more and more from that but if i held on to that then there was this tightness around it like i, I was using this example in a, a cloud mountain talk that you know those of you who are parents you know diaper bags right you know you carry diaper bags and at a certain point it's very essential to have one handy for those messes that come up and at some point, though, the child becomes potty trained and you don't have to carry that around. But if I kept carrying that around, you know, because I want to be in that role, I'm so fixated in the person who is the father who changes diapers and takes care of your child that way, you know, I'm not going to be very welcome at high school graduations or sending her off to college. Yeah, so it's, it's that, that kind of tightness of the role. So that's part of what I mean by these, how these all interlate, interlink. That impermanence, we can see when it, we're suffering around it, it's often because we've formed a place of identity around it. Right? So we can, we can work with seeing impermanence, but you can also start to notice, oh, I'm really, I want to be something. I want to be someone in this way. And any, any role we take in our lives is going to change. You know, look at pictures of yourself from 10 years ago. How much of you have changed? You can reject the next 10 years how you will change. Relationships come and go. People live and they die. They're born and they pass away. You know, so it's not about being close to feeling the this, this sorrow of that, those coming and going. It's that added on suffering. That's added on identification around it. And the final kind of dukkha is the it's called the sankara dukkha or the conditioned dukkha so sankara you might recognize that from the five aggregates it's one of the aggregates it's one of those these really processes that we create that sense of, of self around now you can think of it really in a very i sometimes think of it this is is really the the big mechanism of creating the sense of me because it really feels like me when I'm the Sankara is operating. So this is when we're making choices, making decisions, but also following impulses is also much of a choice is something more intentional. Okay. So that might look like, okay, I'm planning something out, but in the moment it's much more kind of almost instinctual. It's almost more 
reactive. It's more of a reflex that we're just acting out, thinking about something. So to make this really simple, you know, you'd stub your toe. And if you practice getting really reactive, that's the sankara you're cultivating. If you practice just breathing through it and feeling it, that's a different sankara that actually quiets things down. Now, this sunk, this quality of dukkha, this is all the emotions, all the thought process, all this kind of conglomerate of experience, our memory, our history, all coming together with how we're meeting this moment. And it's really, the sankara part of it is really important because that's telling you that that's karmically um, loaded. It's karmically active. What I mean by that, you're making little choices. Again, you may not realize you're making a choice. You might be just following your, your impulses and your reaction. But you're basically digging a groove, making a deeper groove. You're making you more likely for that to come up, more likely to happen. I remember um, I would, uh, here's a, a kind of a silly example of this. We have a day long coming up on um, Saturday. And for years after, you know, the end of a day long, I would have a little craving for something sweet. And so I would go get, you know, get a little treat. And then that kind of conditioned me for whenever the day long was over, oh, it's time to get a treat, right? So it's like the, the body just kind of got conditioned for looking for that, for seeking that. And so how we meet the moment, the karma means the action. And so so there's a lot of ways we misinterpret karma, but basically it sets the potential for things to arise in some way in the future. We can't predict how it's going to arise or the shape of it. Sometimes it's it's more of a one-on-one ratio, and sometimes it's much more complex. Now, this, this one, the Buddha talked about the way he, one of the ways he talked about it, this is actually considered the first words he said after he awoken. He said that through many a birth in samsara, I've wandered in vain, seeking the builder of this house. Repeated birth is indeed suffering. O house builder, you are seen. You will not build this house again, for your rafters are broken and your ridgepole shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I've obtained the destruction of craving. Okay, so that, that's that first realization, the first way of describing that. So this house builder process, think of the house builder as that deep impulse to want to be somebody. So what I mean by that, it's not, there's certainly the element of your careers and your different roles and being a skillful person and being a good partner and being a good parent. And those are all helpful and skillful things. It's more of that sense of that's really what I am. That defines what I am. If you have all these roles and you see them as something that's, that's, that arises and passes away. You know, if I used to be a, um, a wildland firefighter for the forest service, not as a, as a site, you know, when it was needed, I was that. But if I came in here with my wildland firefighter gear on, my Nomax yellow, bright yellow shirt and green pants and my hard hat and my, my shake and bake fire shelter, it wouldn't be appropriate. It's not, there's no fire here. But that's often what happens if we hold those roles so solidly, we don't, can't let them go. And so this is the good news because it's not like we have to give up the things we do well and our hobbies and our relationships 
we just actually give up the suffering that's associated with them. The suffering that we hold on to them longer than is appropriate. So in this role, then I show up in that. When that is no longer needed, it falls away. And we start to realize what it's falling away into is really that stillness, that silence, that emptiness. There's so many ways of describing something which is undescribable. And the house builder analogy is that sense of creating that sense of me, saying that's who I am in a very subtle level, but also a very deep level, very deep level there. The Buddha talked about the cause of dukkha as being this tanha, this thirst, this hunger to be, to form. It's a, it's a little bit like this, that if you have foods that tend to, to spike your blood sugar, like let's say having a sweet tooth, if I have a lot of sweets, my blood sugar gets out of balance. And of course, the craving of that is wanting more sweets, but that just spikes it more. So it's a little bit like that process of how we are always wanting to, to arrive, to be who something, to create that sense of ownership. Yet that's the very thing that creates suffering. And that very sense of suffering is what wants us, makes us want to try to be free of it. But we tend to do it by creating another sense of self. So we're kind of in this circle of samsara. It's ongoing. And that's what the Buddha said. That's optional. You can actually break free of that. You can actually see through that. And he created this incredible path of practice, of insight, of inquiry, that all we have to do is learn to see that more and more clearly. So these three aspects of dukkha, you know, taking that in this next week, seeing where is that, when I feel that subjective sense of suffering, what's really going on? Is it that ordinary dukkha that I'm kind of adding that second arrow of reactivity? Is it that dukkha that I'm resisting the fact that life is changing as it will always change? Or is it that I'm creating that sense of self around it? Am I identified in a way I'm holding on to that? So become curious about it, notice it. That's why the Buddha said, first noble truth, get to know your dukkha. Get to see your dukkha, understand your dukkha. Don't be deceived by your dukkha. Second noble truth is to see the, the origin of that, how that arises, and the cessation of it. All right, so let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. You know, talk a little bit more about the homework and open to any questions or sharing you might have. All right, so working with the homework, so online, I, I send it off to you. Hopefully you got that. And if you haven't got it, let me know. I can send it again. Or maybe, um, Bob, you could resend it. Okay. And then those in the room, hopefully you got a physical copy. So I, I've, I've kind of explored it quite a bit during the talk, but just to reiterate, so this week, exploring the nature of dukkha as it arises in your daily life. Can make this a very practical, nitty-gritty kind of thing. Just whenever you feel suffering, maybe not whenever, but sometimes when you feel suffering, 
So I'm going to take the opportunity to explore that. Maybe if you can, just sit quietly for a moment. Helping, it's helpful to kind of suspend your normal actions around it. Because usually we're so busy moving from one suffering to another, trying to avoid it. That if we, if you have a chance just to, okay, I'm going to just sit quietly for a couple moments and just see what's going on in this mind and body, what's going on in the heart. Right? And that allows you to, to interrupt the normal sankaras of acting out of it. It usually goes into reactivity. You actually see what's going on. What's the physical sensations? What's the impulse to move and to act? And as you do that, start to notice are you acting like that second arrow, adding reactivity to the, the pain? Pain's here, and I'm adding all this other stuff on top of it. Or am I resisting the nature of change, of impermanence? Or am I trying to follow this thirst to establish that sense of self? Do I feel like, I feel like okay, that's who I am. That's what I am. The defensiveness, the opinionation. Even more subtly, just that orientation that you're the person who's experiencing that. That's, that's kind of a deep inquiry, but it's, that's where we go. And then finally noticing, how can I release this added on suffering? There's some way I can let it, that go, find some way of not adding it on. All right? So I look forward. I think I will be here next week. I offer that to Chwari. So unless she's feeling like teaching, I'll be here and we can explore this next week with a recap talk and, and he's hearing what you have to have explored around Duca. So now we have a chance for any questions or sharing you might have. So in the room, you're welcome to raise your hand and we can have you come over here so we can hear you online or online. You can just raise your, your virtual hand. If you raise your physical hand, I may not, I may not see it right away. All right, Iris, go ahead. Okay, we'll give you permission on mute. Sorry. Okay, I'll, I think I locked the mute or the thing down. Okay, you should be good, to Iris. Great, thank you. Thank you. So, um, uh, I, I'm I'm taking a risk here. Um, so, um, dukkha of the third kind, the sankhara, that I experienced very acutely when you said at the beginning of the evening that Tawari's son had died. And, um, I hadn't known that. And, um, the way, you, the way you said, the way I heard it from the words that you said was like everybody knew but me. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter if that's true or not. Um, you know, that's, that, that, that's what I heard. And so I immediately felt the pain of, um, I mean, I felt the pain of Tawari's loss, but right after <laughs> I felt the pain of me being left out of something important and that, um, you know, I'm not important to Sims and that, um, and that I have not reached out enough to Sims. Um, so it was my fault either way. Um, you know, I haven't been active enough or something like that. And 
Um, so I was very aware of this pain in, in my body that I have felt lots in my life throughout my life about, you know, um, uh, being left out, not being important, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, you know, very quickly realized many things. One, that it's this old habit pattern, that it's not true. And that, um, I was making it about me, you know, the, the, where is loss? I, you know, I, I made it about me and my hurt feelings. And, um, but I was sort of able to, to see all of those, all of those steps of this habit pattern raising its head and causing that, that pain that, that was not necessary. So I felt like I, that I saw through what my psych, psyche was doing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Iris. So honestly, just trying to find where you are. Oh, there you are. Um, yeah, when Zoom sometimes switches where you are and there's enough people on the thing, I have to like, like I'm making eye contact. Where does she go? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you for sharing so honestly and tenderly around that. Yeah. And certainly, you know, our intention wasn't to exclude. It's more of just, you know, partly it's wanting to see what Tori's wishes are, like not broadcasting an email out to the whole saga until maybe she has some chance to digest things and kind of honoring that. And we've announced it, announced it on Sunday. We announced it tonight. And I'm sure many people did not know. Yeah, because only, yeah, so it wasn't that piece. Yeah, but, the, but I appreciate, I know that's not the focus of it. Yeah, I do appreciate what you focused on was really that, that sense of this is what's eliciting around it. There's all, all that stuff. And that's really that, that third level of, of dukkha, as you mentioned. So observing it like you're doing it and seeing all in a very honest way, because so, so often it's hard to see that, especially when we feel kind of, wow, I, you know, here's someone else's grief and I'm making it all about me. You know, that's, that's, that's a really honest inquiry and that we need that honesty to be able to see that whole process. So we see all that. And then say, this is, this is in some ways, the hard part is like, okay, can I just sit in the middle of that, that quality of dukkha and noticing how there's, there's an impulse to move with it. So movement can be, you know, elaborating like, you know, how, how you, you describe that really beautifully or clearly how you would go into this, this is how I've always been, or this is all these other times, but you're able to by, find your way down to just holding that, holding that pain of that. Okay. And then you hold it. And that, that is like your, your mindfulness is actually connecting with the pain. You're seeing it clearly. And then each time we do that, it starts to loosen, it starts to let go more and more. And then you start to even more subtly noticing how all of that does an excellent job of forming the sense of iris, you know, and we can substitute each one of our names in that. Of course, it does a great job of forming that sense. Okay. That's, that's what I am. If, if I'm anything, I'm this deep core pain. Yeah. Right. And so then we hold that and just be with that and notice that and see, okay, what's noticing that what's observing that. What I mean by that is call your attention to the capacity of mind and heart, which is holding that experience itself, that is actually outside of that pain. 
it's not of that pain. And that points to something which is outside of that identification. And so that way, this opening to pain can be this gateway into, into liberation. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, the, 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 pain, um, the, the pain lessened. I mean, it didn't, it, you know, I think as I started to see what was going on, it, it lessened because uh, I'm, not, I'm not fooled nearly as easily as I used to be by that kind of thinking and um, making myself an outsider. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that, that sense of lessening. And was there also a sense of, of being a little more quiet inside too? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So those two pieces, if we're doing some kind of investigation or inquiry, I think those are such helpful um, kind of litmus tests or kind of guideposts. Because we can, we can go into our psychological pain in a way that actually makes us more hurt more. We can go in a way that makes us more kind of noisy inside. Mm-hmm. But the dharmic perspective is, as you just described, you become, the pain becomes less. You become, there's something that starts to fall away. So for often for me, it's like, it's like the pain instead of being all over the place is like, oh, it's this, <laughs> this core thing here. But it's not this, you know, uh, this huge mass of all these things in my life. It's just this, this kind of deep piece, piece of pain. And then there's also a quieting that's happening. So that's showing that you're starting to, to connect more and more with that, what's outside of that pain. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's, that's very helpful for all of us. And thank you for your courage for doing that. Thanks. All right. Anyone else? Yeah. You'd like to come up, Beth? We have it over here. Okay. Okay, thank you. I um I'm so grateful for both of your sharings, um the personal pieces around story and around um the pain that's related to that formation of self. And I've recently developed a sort of a Dharma mantra. The, I call it the Dharma of, of course, of course I'm doing that, you know, and sort of to give myself a break. And um, I've been more recently feeling um, the, that self-protection of my animal self, you know, the part of me that, I remember, I think it was Larry Rosenberg was talking about the formation of sense of self and, and uh, how like we developed that sense, like that hurts, that's your arm, take care of it. Yeah. And then so that our developing, you know, my dog doesn't know that, right? My dog hurts his arm and they're like, what happened? They don't know. They don't have the sense of, or like, that's your body, don't eat it. You know, and that's the same sense that will have me writhing in pain and, and freaking out about a, a kidney stone. And I guess I've spent a lot of years trying to outwit myself, my, 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 my native self with the Dharma, if that mm-hmm. makes any mm-hmm. sense, and um, find the tricks that are going to work that's going to make me pain-free and uh, 
totally cool all the time. And I realize that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to be, I mean, Iris is a long-term practitioner. You've got, I mean, like if, if y'all are doing this, I don't stand a chance to, to totally chill out and never have that happen. And so I, I find relief in that. That actually relieves suffering for me. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Thank you, Beth. Yeah. That, um, I think one of the key things I heard from you is just that sense of just acknowledging this is how the conditions are. This is the pattern of mind. Of course that it, that's, of course that pattern is going to arise. And that's very different than trying to judge that pattern or fix it or deny it that it's there. And when we you know, deny it, that that's, that's a more, unfortunately can be, we can use Dharma ways to de- try to deny it, which just actually ties us more into knots. And so often, I mean, I think sometimes the most simple practice is simply bowing toward that thing and say, thank you for how you, how arising. Thank you for how you've served me like that conditioning. Okay. This is my arm. I have, you know, we have to learn that this is our body. You know, if children don't go through that individualization and this is who I am, this is what I am. I'm separate from my mom. I'm separate from my parent or my dad. You know, this is, I am me and you are you. And, they have to go through that. They have to have, hopefully develop a healthy sense of self. And then at some point they can see that's a relative expression of this humanness. But if we have that, that nod of like, okay, I have to be this way. That's one of the biggest rubs. I mean, that would be a good homework actually is noticing how you're taking exception to this moment, how you think the moment should be somewhere else, how I should, how, or how I should be someone, something else or someone else. Whenever you feel that, that's that dissonance, that's going to keep you tied up into that, that quality of suffering. But paradoxically, when you have no resistance, no friction with how you're rising, it doesn't matter. Okay, I'm here, I'm there, you know, and, and then something falls away because you realize this was actually much easier than I made it out to be. I spent all this time really making this much harder. And I think you're always cool. You're totally cool all the time anyway. So <laughs> I think you're cool too, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. All right. So we have some more time. So Matt, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, so another translation I've heard of Duca before is um, unsatisfactoriness. That's a definition that's resonated with me. I was noticing it this morning, like so scary for work. Like, you know, I wish it wasn't Monday. I wish I didn't have to go to work today. I wish I could do something more fun. Um, and you know, it's kind of, it's not like a super, like it's a totally pleasant morning this morning. You know, it wasn't like any like big pain, just like kind of that, you know, wishing it was different and wondering, um, does that fit into like the first definition of Dukkha? Or how do you see that? Like the unsatisfactory type of Dukkha fitting into the, the different varieties you were talking about? All right. Yes. Yeah, so the question around that translation is of unsatisfactoriness is an aspect of dukkha of the markers of existence and whether it, how it ties into those three. It's really part of all three of them. I would say that the first one of, of the dukkha of ordinary suffering. And of course, there's that, the fact that we do experience pain and how that just like, oh, yeah, I have to go to work. <laughs> Excuse me. I have to talk and I have a cough.
personal hay fever, I think. She had seen me on Thursday when I was teaching. I was anyway. So yeah, so it comes up in that that way that that unsatisfactoriness. <clears throat> you know, we often feel that as pain. Yeah, so we <clears throat> excuse me. Okay, so the unsatisfactoriness of something, so we can, when we start to sense that in the moment, that in itself creates dukkha. And so it's like, yeah, this is just, you know, I don't, don't like the fact that this isn't the way I want it to be. And then there's the, the sense of change often shows that. We see something that's, this is something the Buddha would often point toward, is that, you know, you think that you're so solid, you think that you're so, you know, unchanging. Actually, take a look at that assumption. Actually, see like the five aggregates. Look at each of them. See how how solid are those? Does feeling tone, does Vedana stay solid or is it always fluxing? Is that sense of form, is a body solid or if I sense into it, is it actually changing? Does it change over time? You know, the sense of perception. And so that's really embedded in that satisfactoriness. And finally, that sense of, of the volitional pieces of it. Is yet yeah, so those are when you as meditators we know just how how random our thoughts go, how the reactions and thoughts and emotions are all going all over the place. Sometimes it feels like a ping pong, a, a pinball machine that this going, you know, bumpers and lights are going off, all this stuff is happening. And all that, there's nothing really solid that we can land on, and that inherently is unsatisfied is unsatisfied, um, unsatisfying or is unsatisfactory. Does that help, Matt? Yeah, thank you. Yep, sorry about the... Sometimes those mucus have to have their own home timing. All right, Emery, let's go with you, and then we'll see if there's anyone back here in the room. Yeah, I had a question about another experience of suffering and where it lies in, in this list, and that is the the suffering of like longing for liberation, longing for um, uh, yeah, awakening, you know, wanting um, to embody that awakened self more in daily life. I'm not sure where, where that you know, wanting to move along the path, not so much in like a, you know, like not so super caring, like where am I exactly? Or I want, like, it's really important to my sense of self to be liberated, but just like, you know, no, like tasting it, knowing it's there, you know, tasting into it just here and there. And yet then it's just, you know, gone as, as, the day zooms along and the weeks zoom along. So I'm just curious because I mean, at first I was like, Oh, it's number three, it's Sankara. But then I'm like, well, but, but that longing knows that it's longing for non-self really. So anyway, I got all confused. I was wondering what you think. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that question. So, it's, it's a tricky one because there's an aspect of that longing, which is kind of outside of dukkha, you know, when, especially when it's, 
it's like that longing for this, like really the heart's longing. It's not, not coming from the mind. It's not coming from a insufficiency or inadequacy. Um, so it, there's a, it's, usually it's a mixture. I would say that there's some, some part of you, especially when you, there's some just kind of drawing you into this. And there's no, there's really no dukkha with that. But if there's a sense of suffering, like, okay, I'm not there yet, or why am I forgetting? And why am I, I've been practicing for this long and why am I not going this way? When we're basically comparing where we are, where we think we should be, that's where, that's where that third dukkha arises. And we can, we can cause a lot of suffering from that. But the Buddha, you know, he would, one way of defining dukkha is really clinging is that sense of, of craving clinging, which is a code for becoming, of taking shape, taking form, taking identity around it. And so with, with this kind of a, probably the simplest way to look at it is that notice when you're, when you're longing for awakening and for liberation, notice if it's any place other than right here. Any thought that it's other than right here in this moment, that's where the dukkha lies. If there's any sense that I have to get from point A to point B, that's where the dukkha lies. Yeah, that's, and that's the, one teacher I was, I was reading recently described it this way, that often the mind really wants, wants to understand enlightenment, really you know, longs for it and really seeks it and is hunger for it. But that's, like trying to take sand and squeeze sand and make butter out of that sand that we can spend, you know, hundred of years trying to do that and never get a drop of butter out of it. That's because it's not the mind that awakens. It's really the heart. Right. So that's where I would, I would direct your question is noticing, you know, what's directing this, this longing and reorient to that heart and that immediacy of right now. And there's, there's, it's right here. It's more just that we forget that and having compassion for the forgetting compassion that sometimes, you know, what I need to do is not worry about alignment. I need to work with this really practical thing in my life. How do I deal with this, this grief, this loss? How do I deal with this, this pattern? And, you know, Always coming back, remembering, okay, this is this is here right now, this potential for awakening. Thank you, Emory. Come right back here in person. Anyone have anything they'd like to ask or share? Yes, come on up. I wanted to ask. Uh, Could you grab the other one too, so they could hear in, in the room a little better? Yeah. I wanted to ask. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of things in life where you you kind of have to create something, like whether that's a, a job or a relationship, mm-hmm. or like I was thinking, how can you be married and like not be attached? You know, or like have kids and not be attached because I mean, or even eat, not be attached or like be thirsty. Like I'm thirsty. I want the water. (laughs) I can't really avoid that attachment to water, you know. Um, So what do you do in these situations that you can't really avoid? 
where uh, you're you're like longing for something mm-hmm. or uh, you kind of need to care for something. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll paraphrase that, see if I got it. So question is around um, how do you how do you work with things when you, you are naturally attached to it? Like something as simple as needing water, needing food, or more, you know, complex things like wanting to have a relationship or be a parent or have a career. There's there's a natural attachment that can come up with that. And how do you how do you reconcile all this talk about non-attachment to that? Is that kind of the essence of your question so it's it's a really important question because we sometimes confuse the forms of our life the shape of our life or the activity of our life with with attachment so if we're really not the sense of attachment what do we mean by that too it's really that sense of can i can i be fully with something fully connected to it really close to it but at the same time when it's time for it to fade or go away i can just let it go and so, like, if I have a career, for example, there might be a time of really training my mind and working and doing all the stuff I have to do. But I realize that that ultimately is at some point going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to be in that career anymore, whether I lose that job or I retire or choose to do something else. And so you start to see that you actually become much more fluid in life that you can say, okay, I'm going to really engage in this. But when this no longer makes sense to engage in it, I'd let it go. Or being a parent, you can see how things change. Probably in your own life, you've noticed that there, maybe when you're younger, like in middle school, high school, now in college, each of those has different stages, right? There's different things which are really important to you. It doesn't negate that, okay, those, those things, they have their, their time. They have their, their time of really engaging. And then when they pass, if you can just say, okay, that was a nice experience. What's next right now? How does this next moment arise? And that's another way to look at it. Instead of it being like this solid thing that I'm, I'm working toward, it's more something that's arising in the moment, arising again and again. Like just like taste. You can, okay, I'm drinking this water. I can feel that water go in my body, right? I don't have to keep holding on to that one taste of water. Okay, that was great. And now that taste is gone. Yeah, so you can, so you can see how there's actually an aliveness. And then even something like a career is really nice because instead of being stuck, this is what it looks like. Oh, now it looks like this. Now it shifts this way. Now it shifts this way. So you see how there's this internal fluidity, but the externalness, someone may look at you and say, well, he's, you know, he's just a normal person, but internally you can feel very different because you're not, not clung to things. There's not that Velcro. Does that help at all? Okay. Thank you. All right, maybe one or two questions more if there's anyone in the room or online. All right, come on up. Yeah, if you can grab both. So to follow up on the last question, you may have answered, but I didn't register it. You like relationships, which can be utterly consuming, can they not? Particularly in the beginning. And then longer-term relationships, your spouse. There's how, what, how does that fit into the idea of attachment? Because that seems like it'd be hard not to be mm. consumed or attached to a, 
to a profound degree. You didn't answer that a second ago, I don't think. Otherwise, I don't want you to do it twice. But. Well, yeah, it's a similar question, but, you know, more specific expression of it. So that's, that's a good question. So how do you, you know, reconcile this, this discussion with relationships, you know, the different stages, and how do you not be attached to that? Okay, so let's, let's define, maybe we have to define attachment a little bit. So like my wife and I were, I was driving back from a family gathering over yesterday and, and she was, you know, a little irritated with me for a few things. So I said, okay, tell me about it, right? So if I was attached, I wouldn't be able to hear that. I wouldn't be able to ask what, you know, what have I done to me, describe that. And if I wanted her not to ask that to be like the whatever person who doesn't confront me with my failings, that's a form of attachment. So it's like we being connected and actually being you know committed and connected is different than being attached. I think of attachment as this kind of this place where we kind of fix it. Like I'll love you as long as you're like this, and don't change. And I'll love you as long as you want me, you allow me to be, you know, this way. But if we allow ourselves to really each moment be fresh, and that's the harder part about later on in a relationship is how do you still have that freshness? How do you have to say, how is this person showing up right now? Not to say they've been like this every day that you've known them in the last 30 years, but how am I, how are they in this moment? How are they actually showing up here? That's all forms of being not attached to how life is showing up, but it's not about being not connected. So sometimes we think if you're not attached, that means I'm disconnected. It's not that at all. It can actually be much more connected because you're not stuck in that. No way, you're supposed to be that way. I'm supposed to be this way. That's, that's a form of how attachment actually shows up. And when that person, when your, your life ends or their ends, of course, there's the grief of that. That's, that's not attachment. That's different. That's different. And can you care? I mean, in the context of, of uh, these principles, being so connected to another individual is not the type of attachment that we're talking about in the in Dukkha. Yes. I mean, it has a potential for not to be. I mean, most relationships are pretty, they're pretty you know, laced with attachment, if you will. A lot, here's a good test for you, for anyone, is to see if you're attached to something, is when it ends, what comes up for you? When it changes, what comes up for you? You know, if you have a beautiful mind state and it ends, what, you know, oh, I want that to continue. That's your attachment. You know, if you're having a painful state, I can't wait till this is over, there's the attachment shows up. And it doesn't mean that, you know, when someone dies, someone passes away, you don't feel that loss. You don't feel that impact. The Buddha, when he lost his two closest students, he said he felt like the, the light had gone out of the world. He felt like, you know, there's 500 people sitting here and I feel like I'm all alone. And he felt that grief. It just, you know, how, how long do we stay? You know, if he stayed that way for the next 10 years, then there's that attachment. Yeah, so it's like that willingness to, to move, allow it to, to move. To kind of accept it rather than stick with it. 
I suppose. Yeah, accept it versus instead of being stuck with it. It's like that, like Beth's uh, comment around just ex- meeting the moment how it is. This is how I am in this moment. Got it. Cool. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, these are all great ways I'm engaging around this topic. And yeah, it's it's really something you have to find. Where, where's my entry point? What's What am I curious about? Does this apply to everything? Can I can I see how it how it works? And you all have your perfect laboratory of your own mind and body and your your life. You know that's where the practice shows up. And that's where you have to practice it. All right. So thank you for your great uh, engagement, and I look forward to hearing from you next week as we talk about dukkha in your your life. All right, and you're welcome to. Um, I'm not going to ask you to say goodbye online because you're, you're wired here. So the whole room here, although you can wave. Thank you.